And three of the thirty chief men went down and came about harvest time to David at the cave of Adullam, when a band of Philistines was encamped in the valley of Rephaim. David was then in the stronghold, and the garrison of the Philistines was then at Bethlehem. And David said longingly, Oh, that someone would give me water to drink from the well of Bethlehem that is by the gate. Then the three mighty men broke through the camp of the Philistines and drew water out of the well of Bethlehem that was by the gate and carried and brought it to David. But he would not drink of it. He poured it out to the Lord and said, Far be it from me, O Lord, that I should do this. Shall I drink the blood of the men who went at the risk of their lives? Therefore he would not drink it. These things the three mighty men did. This is the word of our Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks be to God. Hey, good morning, everyone, and happy anniversary. So good to see all of you, both in person and, of course, our dear uh, church family at home watching live stream. We hope and pray that the beginning of this new year is filled with such hope and anticipation of what God is going to do. And let's now expectantly ask God to minister to us as we hear his word. Would you bow your head and please pray with me? Let's pray. Father, as we come before you now on this anniversary Sunday, we give thanks for your faithfulness. We acknowledge how you are so good and so kind. Lord, in times where we are reminded of our inadequacy, of our disobedience, of our unfaithfulness, in each instance, you come and minister to our hearts, Holy Spirit, comforting and counseling us, but also convicting us to the pathway of repentance and forgiveness so that once again we can be assured that our Father's love is infinite and the storehouses of your mercies are never-ending. And so, God, we pray that as we sit at your feet at the beginning of this new year, that you would minister to us with a word that would set a trajectory of a new year of faithfulness, of obedience, and of joy and thanksgiving. Father, we know that there are things that we must face and that you will give us the grace to endure. And we pray that in the midst of those things, we would also remember your goodness and mercies to us. And now, Lord, we pray that you will bless this message in spite of the one who brings it. For we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. You know, when we're little kids, our parents are always warning us of not coming under the influence of unforeseen or uncommendable characters. Stay away from that Stella or don't go near that Mike, they might say. And why do they say such things? Because they know that we have nothing beneficial to gain, no positive influence to garner from people of such wickedness, of such shady character, and of poor disposition. And this idea carries over into our adult life as well. We know that when a person of prominence is discovered to be of shady character, we quickly quickly cancel them, and they're no longer in a position of influence and promise because we do know that such people have nothing good to offer in terms of being influential. And of course, that's true, except for when it's not. What do I mean? Well, I mean this. People are complex creatures. In many ways, they're walking paradoxes to where on the one hand, there are things about them that are no doubt disturbing and disgusting. And yet on the other hand, these people have things about them that are amazing and awesome. And one person that fits this characteristic to the T is the one that we read about in today's passage, David, King David. And depending on who you ask, you will get a complete polar opposite idea in terms of how we should see him. 
If you talk to someone who's very cynical, they'll say, oh yeah, that David, that wicked, cold-blooded, murderous, lying, cheating person, that person we have nothing to benefit from, nothing to learn from. And then if you talk to a charitable person, they'll say, oh yes, that David, that man after God's own heart, someone who was zealous for the glory of God, a great king who wanted to lead his entire nation to the proper worship of God. And one question that you might be asking yourself today is, Pastor, where do we as a church stand before God? How should we receive him? Should we receive him as someone that we should avoid like the plague to where we have nothing to learn from? Or should we see him as a great example to follow? A source of inspiration and therefore imitation in terms of how we should be like. That's a great question. Before I answer, we're kicking off a new sermon series of this new year, a series that we used to do quite often here at NCF but haven't for a while, and that is our Grow Up Sermon Series. If you've been part of our church for a while, you know that one of the things that we're all about here at NCF is maturing in our faith, growing in our faith. Why? Because it's when we grow up in the gospel that we're able to go out with the gospel, right? And for the next six weeks, we're going to take a look at the six characteristics that make up a growing and maturing faith. And we kick off by looking at the first and really foundational characteristic. And that is the characteristic of being godly or being a person who exhibits godliness. And in spite of the cynics, we're going to take a look at what David has to offer to us, charitably speaking, in terms of the examples to follow of a godly life. David is going to show us what it entails to be a godly person. And as we consider, three things are going to emerge. First, to be godly, we must stay thirsty. Second, to be godly, we must not steal devotion from God. And finally, to be godly, we must believe the gospel. Okay, so those are the three things that we're going to do. Okay, can we time out for just a moment? I'm already, like, breathing really hard. Are you guys okay if I take my mask off so I can uh, keep preaching? Okay, sorry. I thought I could do it, but... Test, test, can you guys hear me? Test, test. Uh oh. Test, test. Check, one, two. Check. Sam can hear me. Can you guys not hear me over here? Should I put the mask back on so you can hear me? Test, test, one, two. Okay, yeah. Not only was I sounding like Darth Vader, but I felt like I was slowly uh, sinking into sand, so. Please bear with me. We're more than six feet away. So, all right. So the three points that we're going to look at today's message is first, stay thirsty, not steal devotion from God, and finally, believe the gospel. First, stay thirsty. Read again with me our passage, starting in verse 13. We read, and three of the 30 chief men went down and came about harvest time to David at the cave of Adullam, when a band of Philistines was encamped in the valley of Raphaim. David was then in the stronghold, and the garrisons of the Philistines was then at Bethlehem. And David said longingly, Oh, that someone would give me water to drink from the well of Bethlehem that is by the gate. Okay, pause right there. Your attention, please. Bible scholars are unsure in terms of when the events that we just read happened in David's life. Some scholars think that it occurred while David is on the run from the king of Israel, who, if you recall, was his own father-in-law, King Saul, because Saul was so murderously envious of the fact that David was going to take over his throne, and Saul tried to stop it by trying to kill him before that could happen, and so David had to go on the run. 
Other Bible scholars think that these events occurred right after David was freshly minted as the new king of Israel, and the Philistines thought that they could take advantage of this newbie freshman king and easily conquer Israel, and therefore David had to go on the run yet again. But here's the thing. For our intents and purposes, we don't really need to know when these events occurred, but where they occurred. And where does this passage occur? Verse 13, it says it occurs in the cave of Adullam. Now, when you first hear that, that sounds like some hidden cave on a distant planet that you would hear in a Star Wars movie. But in reality, it's one of many caves you can easily find in the Middle East, in this instance, just 20 miles from the city of Bethlehem, David's hometown. Now, you might be wondering, why is it so important for us to know the details of where David was at the events of these events? Well, let me explain. For you and I, being 20 miles away from your home may not seem like a big deal. But for David, at that moment of his life, it was as if he was on a distant planet in a galaxy far, far away. Why? Because he was struggling with a severe case of darkness, a severe case of depression, a severe case of being downcast at the depths of his soul. And because he was in that kind of mental, psychological, emotional condition, he longed for the one place that would make all of that go away, that one place that would be his refuge, the one place where he knew he could overcome such things, and that was home. David was truly longing for home. Listen again to what he says in verse 15. Oh, that somebody would give me water to drink from the well of Bethlehem that is by the gate. These are not the words of a guy who is simply thirsty for any kind of water. No, this is a man who was thirsting for a specific water that can only be found at a specific place because of the meaningfulness of this place in his life. That is his home. David was longing for home. He was longing for his homeland. As many of you guys may know, not too long ago, my family and I got to enjoy a wonderful one-month sabbatical where we took a break for ministry. And during that time, we did a lot of traveling. We went from places near and far, discovered new places, reconnected with old friends. And my kids loved pretty much the entire trip. But there was one moment where my oldest, Kara, said to me, Daddy, I kind of want to go back home. And I said to her, why? Why, why do you want to go back already? You know what she said to me? Because I miss Thai food in Bayside, Queens, right? I miss the Thai food that we always go to. Right? My daughter was uh, missing out on her favorite dish, you know, uh, pad thai in Bayside. And, of course, it didn't help that she was saying this as she attempted to eat a plate full of noodles that the cafeteria that we were at claimed to be pad thai. Right? She was longing for a place that she belonged. She longed for a place where she should be, the place that she called home. But unfortunately for her, she didn't have parents who were like the men of David. Because what do three of these men of David do when they hear their Lord claiming of wanting to have the waters of Bethlehem? Read again what it says, 16, verse 16. Then the three mighty men broke through the camp of the Philistines and drew water out of the well of Bethlehem that was by the gate and carried and brought it to David. Wow. Talk about devotion. Talk about duty. Talk about dedication. Here are these three men who not once but twice risked their lives, right, by first fighting the Philistine encampment, surviving and going to the town of Bethlehem, finding the well, getting a cup of water, and they're turning right back around to face the same army they embarrassed a moment ago and still push through their resilience to kill them so they can get to David and give them this cup 
of water. Now, you would imagine that as David realizes what these three devoted men just did for him, that he would ensure to drink every last drop of that water, right? How else could you properly repay the gratitude, the thanksgiving that you should have when your men did such a thing? And yet that's not what David does at all. He doesn't drink any of it. What does he do instead? Verse 16, but he would not drink of it. He poured it out to the Lord and said, far be it from me, O Lord, that I should do this. Shall I drink the blood of the men who went at the risk of their lives? What in the world are you doing, David? Did you just drop the water that your men risked their lives to give you by pouring it out and not drinking it at all? What are you, crazy? What are you, insane? No, he's not crazy. He's not insane. He's godly. That's what he's doing. See? Listen again to David's explanation to why he spilled the water out. He says, shall I drink the blood of the men who went at the risk of their lives? Now, that's an interesting explanation and not very clear. And so we ask, what exactly is he saying by saying those words? Well, he means many things, but one obvious thing that he's saying is this. No earthly home is worth the cost of a human life. No earthly home is worth the cost of a human life. As much as David longed for a particular place that was so meaningful to him on this earth, i.e. Bethlehem, he also knew that it was not as important, not as valuable as the lives of his men. And he illustrates this by choosing to stay thirsty by pouring the water out into the ground instead of drinking it. And that right there is the example of godliness that we are to follow because here we see what godliness is. Godliness is when you recognize that there are more important things than your earthly home, such as human life. Now you hear that, and you might be somewhat confused. Because after all, don't you need a home in order to have a flourishing life? I mean, we hear the horror stories of people suffering and even dying due to homelessness. So how can David make such a claim? How can David say that your home is not as valuable, not as important as human life when you need that home to even have that life to begin with? Well, it only makes sense if there's more to life than the one you and I are currently living here and now on this earth. And guess what? That's exactly what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches that there's more to life than the one that we're living here and now on this planet because there is another life that we are destined for. In fact, the Bible goes further by saying that is a life you and I were ultimately created for, the life we were ultimately meant to be in, the life where we ultimately belong. That is our heavenly home. And that is the home that we are to long for. That is the home we are to be thirsting for more than any other home that we can make or create or discover on our own. You see, that is what David is trying to teach us here in terms of what godliness is. Godliness is when you remember to thirst for your one and only true home, your final resting place, and it's nowhere here and now. This is what Jesus was getting at when he once uttered these words in Matthew 16. Following in verse 25, we read, For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will find it. What good will it be for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? Here Jesus makes clear, even if it was possible for you to make a home out of this whole world, if this whole world was just personally yours, Jesus says it would still not match the value of your very soul, your human life. Why? Because you were not 
designed and destined to live here and now. This was not supposed to be your true and only home. And this is something that I feel like as Christians, we really need to grasp. Because what is so sad for me to witness sometimes, many times, are Christians who spend so much of their life and really therefore squandered their life of trying to make their place of home here. They worry so much. They work so hard. They obsess and they focus so much of being as safe and as comfortable as they can be as if this is your final resting place. And as a result, you're so consumed, you're so fixated, that you are so negligent of being aware of the needs and the struggles of others to where you're not available because all of that time that you could spend helping and serving and being faithfully present in their lives, you're so busy focused on building your home. Christian, is that you? Is that something that you constantly dream about, focus on, and obsess over and worry about? Of just trying to at your little corner of the world that you can call your own and say, finally, it's here. Finally, I'm done. Finally, I can rest and be at peace. If it is, then you need to follow the example of David. Because in spite of whatever flaws and issues that you can point out to him, he can turn that back to you and point out the flaw of your lack of godliness by not retaining your thirst for the home that you ultimately belong, the home that you should seek to have and not seek to satisfy with fake, false, temporary homes that will not ultimately give you the rest and peace that you're longing for. This is the first thing David teaches us about what it means to be godly. It's refusing to quench your thirst, but instead stay thirsty for your longing for your true heavenly home where the person that you're meant to be with the most, your God, is waiting to spend eternity with you. That's the first thing we need to understand if we choose to be godly. But wait, there's more, because David tells us there's something else that we need to consider if we want to be godly. And this leads me to my next point, not to steal devotion from God. Read again verse 16, but let's read it in full. Then the three mighty men broke through the camp of the Philistines and drew water out of the well of Bethlehem that was by the gate and carried and brought it to David, but he would not drink of it. He poured it out to the Lord. Okay, if you have a pen, if you have a highlighter, circle, or underline that last phrase of verse 16, he poured it out to the Lord. David poured the water out to the Lord. This is David's other explanation as to why he refused to drink the water his men bravely fought to give him. You see, in the minds of these three, these three soldiers, they felt that David was deserving of the devotion and sacrifice symbolized by this cup of water. But as far as David was concerned, he did not agree. Why? Because David knew that even though he was the leader of these three men, even though he was their king, he also knew he was not their God. Let me say that again. David knew that even though he was the leader of these three men and even their king, he also never forgot he was not their God. And because he understood that, he also knew that there is a level of love, there is a level of dedication, there is a level of sacrifice that's reserved for God and God alone. And this cup of water qualified to that level of dedication, love, and sacrifice. And so David did not dare to bring his dry parched lips anywhere near that water. Instead, he gives it to the one that rightfully and only deserves it. He gives it to God. And because he does, we see another example of godliness of David to follow. We see a man who refused to be treated as if he is God himself. 
This is how you can tell a person is genuinely godly. They refuse to be fawned over, to be praised, to be idolized by those they're called to serve. Whether they're serving in the capacity of a parent, a professor, a politician, a policeman, a person in charge, or a pastor. And yet here's the sad state that we see right now in the church. There's so many people in the church that are considered leaders, people who are looked up to as godly people, who they allow themselves to be treated like they're a bunch of divas, where they allow themselves to be exalted to godlike status by those who work for them, those who live in their homes, or attend their churches. You know, it's that last category that really personally angers me, personally just irks me to a T. I know many of you by now have heard of this ridiculous phenomena called the celebrity pastors, where certain movers and shakers and influencers in the church think that because they feel they're so special, they're so significant, they're so set apart, that they're deserving of the huge platforms, they're deserving of the book deals, they're deserving of the nice sneakers and the stadium filled with fans. This is the condition of the behavior of movers and shakers in the church today, which is the complete polar opposite of servants of the church generations ago. You know, there's a quote that I always go back to periodically as long as I've been a pastor in a vocational sense to keep me humble and to keep me with perspective. And those are the words of Count Zinzendorf. Count Zinzendorf was a 7th century, 17th century Moravian pastor. And he once said these words to a group of would-be pastors when he was teaching them these words. Quote, brothers, preach the gospel, die, and be forgotten. That's all he said. He said, brothers, if you want to be a faithful pastor, preach your gospel, preach the gospel, die, and be forgotten. That's amazing. And yet those are the words that emulate the mindset of David in our passage here. Listen again to David's words in verse 17. Far be it from me, O Lord, that I should do this. Far? I find it so interesting that he begins verse 17 with that word far, a word that literally conveys a vast distance. And yet, what perfect word to conceptualize in David's mind the difference he sees between himself and God. Take a listen to how A.W. Tozer would explain what David is saying. He says this, quote, We must not think of God as highest in an ascending order of being, starting with a single cell and going on up from the fish to the bird to the animal to man to angels and then to God. This would be to grant God eminence, even preeminence, but that is not enough. We must grant him transcendence in the fullest meaning of that word. Forever God stands apart in light, unapproachable. He is as high above an archangel as above a caterpillar. For the gulf that separates the archangel from the caterpillar is but finite. But the gulf between God and the archangel is infinite. The caterpillar and the archangel, though far removed from each other in the scale of created things, are nevertheless one in that they are alike created. They both belong in the category of that which is not God, and are separated from God by infinitude itself, end quote. What's he saying? He's saying God is so vastly greater than us, so vastly superior to us, that we will never be able to be worthy of the accolades, the acclaim, the applause, the status and significance that is reserved for God and God alone. And therefore, we should never dare to think that we are entitled to any such things, whether it comes in the form of wealth, status, or even a simple cup of water that carries that significant status. You see? And if we do, 
we are stealing from God. We are robbing him of devotion that only and exclusively belongs to him. So there you have it. The two examples of godliness that David teaches us that we are to follow. If you want to be godly, you must stay thirsty for your true homeland. If you truly want to be godly, you must never rob the Lord of the devotion and the praise that are exclusively his and his alone. Simple, right? No, it's not simple. Because let's be honest. Who honestly can say with a straight face and an open heart that we are like this? Huh? Who can say that we have followed David's example to the T? I mean, let's be honest. Even David himself didn't follow his own example. In 2 Samuel chapter 11, his thirst for a woman caused him to fall into adultery and murder her husband. In 2 Samuel 24, his ambition to be great caused him to do a census where he counted viable men to fight in his army. Even David himself couldn't stay consistently godly the way he was in our passage here. So here's the question. How does a person like David, how do people like us, how do we become the kinds of people that God says we need to be if we really want to be a source of blessing to the world? Well, this leads me to my final point. Believe the gospel. Read with me one more time, verse 17. In full, it goes as this. And said, far be it from me, O Lord, that I should do this. Shall I drink the blood of the men who went at the risk of their lives? Therefore, he should not drink it. These things the three mighty men did. Therefore, he would not drink it. Excuse me. These things the three mighty men did. You know, when David realized what these three men did for him, the blood that he, excuse me, the water that he held in his hand transformed into blood. Not literally, of course, but symbolically. And that symbolic transformation caused a spiritual transformation in David's heart. Let me explain. It might seem kind of strange for David to react the way that he is. Because after all, he is a commander of armies. And these three men are soldiers in his army. And part of that job description is to be willing to risk your life for your commander. To be willing to even have your blood shed for the sake of your commander. And yet here is David seeing these men risking their lives. And yet he reacts as if he is so undeserving for what they did. Why does David do that? Why? Well, you need to know something about kings in the ancient world. In the ancient world, kings would actually go out into battle leading his troops. He would be the first on the front lines leading his own army. This is how they gained credibility, and this is how he motivated soldiers to fight in the battles that he needed to win. Because he himself risked his own life. He would lead by example, right? This is how kings retained and established and built their kingdoms and empires. But as we read in verse 13, it's clear. David was unwilling or maybe he was unable to risk his life in order to satisfy his longing for home. And yet, here are these three guys, his subjects, his servants, willing to do what David was unable or unwilling to do. And because of that, it changed him. Why? Because that's the same kind of dynamic that causes the change in a person when they believe the gospel. That's why. What is the gospel? The gospel is the message that God, the great one, the one who is far above, far superior to us, came into the world as Jesus Christ. Why? So he could be our servant. So that he could serve us to where he is able to do what we cannot do for ourselves and are unwilling to do for ourselves. Because Jesus, like these three men, went and faced an army that we could not. But it wasn't the Philistine army. It was the army of darkness, 
death, and the devil. And just like the three men who won victoriously over their army, our Jesus won victoriously over the army we could not face that he did for us. He conquered death. He conquered darkness. He conquered the devil so that by dying on the cross as our Savior substitute, yes, we will be forgiven our sins, but what else? One day when he comes back to us after winning his victory, he can give to us what these three men gave to David. Our Lord can give us water. Water. But not waters from the well of Bethlehem that can sustain earthly life, but waters from above that can sustain eternal life. Listen to what Jesus says in John chapter 4. Whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Jesus conquered the armies of death, darkness, and the devil so that when he comes back to us, he will give what the three soldiers gave to David when they came back after winning their victory. He is going to give us a water that we are thirsting for, a water that one day we will drink, and finally we can say, I am finally home. No more despair, no more depression, no more downcastness, no more suffering, no more sorrow, no more trials and tribulation. I can finally rest. I can be at peace. No longer do I have to look in that mirror and be frustrated with the person I'm looking at. No more do I have to struggle with the people that I love. No more do I have the bitterness of saying goodbye to those I love. No more having to deal with the fear of death. I am finally where I belong. I am finally able to satisfy what I try to by moving to a different city, by going on to another relationship, by moving on to another job. No, I can stop that ridiculous rat race and say, I am finally home because my Jesus has given me the water that I thirst for. Do you see? And when you further see that this Jesus this great one, this glorious one did this out of love for you, the same person who you sin against, the same person who you've rebelled against, the same person who you have wronged in your actions, in your mind, in your emotions, in your relationships, with the gifts he's given you? How could you ever dare think of robbing him of the glory and the praise that only he deserves? If you fully understand that love, you won't. And now, all of a sudden, the power of godliness start pervading into your life. And now, a willingness to stay thirsty resonates deep in your soul. And now, an unwillingness to take from God that belongs to him and him alone, his praises, his acclaim. And you're willing to stay focused by doing what you must, serving those who are in your life, and blessing those that he's called you to serve. This is how we become godly people this is the foundation to where we will stand on growing in our faith because it's all based on the foundation of what our faith is all about faith in jesus christ faith in his gospel do you see i pray that you do amen amen let's pray father as we come before you now celebrating this four-year anniversary which again is a manifestation of your faithfulness and goodness to us. We pray that you would help us to see with firm conviction 
of the gloriousness of being a godly person. Not so that we could prop ourselves up to be made much of, but instead point to the one to whom all things are to glorify. Lord, you know how thirsty we can be and how tempting it is to quench it with waters that do not satisfy and to compromise ourselves and to be consumed with only our needs, our struggles, and our comforts and satisfaction and be so negligent of the people that we are called to serve and to love and to help. Father, forgive us of that. Forgive us where we buy into our own press clippings and think we are more than what we are not. Instead, God, help us to see through the example of your servant, David, and the person that he relied on to exhibit the godliness that he did in moments of his life. Let us always look to Jesus Christ and the gospel that he gives to us. For it is only in the power of the gospel that we can be the people you've called us to be, a blessing to the world. Would you hear us now? For we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. We're now going to give God his tithes and our offering.